3: You started your book in the classroom. Why was that? The vast majority of people who have ballet in
4: their lives will spend the vast majority of their time in the classroom. You're learning how to be a student, you're learning how to communicate your ideas or not. And you're absorbing all kinds of lessons about your place in the world and how you are or are not valued, simply by who the teacher pays attention to, how the classroom is structured.
3: When I think about what it felt like to go to ballet class every day as a kid, it feels routine. I spent a lot of my childhood in the ballet classroom. A big room with a high ceiling, old crown molding, tall pillars, Big mirrors on one side, a piano in the corner where the Russian pianist played, the long wooden bar that lined the wall. Our point shoes clip clopped and echoed. Every day I'd pin up my hair and tape up my toes. I'd walk in, put down my water bottle to save my favorite spot at the bar. The point shoes smelled like satin, sweat, and sweet glue. I might chat with my friends while I stretched, but mostly I was silent until class began. I liked the quiet, the focus, the preparation. And of course, once class started, I didn't talk at all. It was a daily practice that I didn't give much thought. That was until I started to read Chloe Angel's book, Turning Point, How a New Generation of Dancers is Saving Ballet from Itself. Chloe interviewed a hundred people to analyze ballet culture today. When I read it, I got to this section about ballet's hidden curriculum, the things children learn by accident, the unintended lessons they pick up in the classroom. I underlined line after line. Chloe wrote, In this hidden curriculum, the ideal ballet dancer is silent, observant, and obedient. The ideal dancer should also be pleasing and pleased her face never conveying how much pain she's in. I wrote in the margins, realizing how this has affected me. When I was reading that part of your book about the hidden curriculum, it's like this light bulb went off, this realization like dawned in my brain. And I, I just thought, my gosh, like how much of my personality and how much of my life has been molded by spending every day in a ballet class as a kid. It just like really got me questioning all kinds of things about myself. Did you have that experience? I'm not very
4: good at ballet. Like I'm just not. About five years ago, I was talking to my therapist (laughs) about why that bothered me so much that I wasn't good, both actually and fictionally, at ballet. And I realized that it was because it felt like failing at a very particular kind of femininity that I had wanted to succeed at since I was very, very small. And one of the things that you learn in ballet is what a good woman looks like. How you're supposed to look... How you're supposed to move. How you're supposed to behave. How you're supposed to tolerate pain. How you're supposed to conceal labour. Who you're supposed to obey. Who you get to have power over. You learn all that in the ballet studio. But the reward for all that is accomplishing this very particular kind of femininity. I spent so much of my youth looking up to the women who had done it and wanting to be like them, and I didn't do it, didn't achieve it. And that disappointment (laughs) is really profound, not just because it feels like failing at ballet, because it feels like failing at womanhood.
3: I think it's so hard to get over ballet because the lessons start early in the ballet classroom and they're folded into something otherworldly, something deeply beautiful. It's like Chloe once said to me, that shit stays with you forever. For My Heart Podcasts and Rococo Punch, This is The Turning, Room of Mirrors. I'm Erica Lance. Part 10, Reverence.
4: I think ballet, in a lot of ways, benefits from the perception that it is a world apart, that it's separate from the real world, that it doesn't have to play by the rules of the real world. But it isn't, and it does. It's just a workplace. It's the real world. It's not separate from the real world.
3: In the classroom, teachers drilled us on the same steps over and over. They yelled above the music while we danced, shouted corrections, things we had to change. They reminded us to smile, something you need to train yourself to be able to do when you perform. I remember one time a girl in my class just couldn't get the steps. The teacher had her do them solo across the floor while we all watched in the corner. She started to cry but the teacher kept having her come back and start again. We were trained to make impossible things look easy, and I became attached to the facade of perfection. I think about the suffering
4: that we accept and the innovation that we don't pursue because we're so attached to ideas about tradition and suffering. I remember very distinctly sitting in the audience of a New York City ballet performance and thinking, this is all just a really great metaphor for womanhood. You're working incredibly hard to make this thing look beautiful. And you're expected to conceal all of the work that goes into that. And in fact, if you show the work, if people know how hard you're working to make this perfect, flawless, ethereal, highly feminine thing, you've failed. Contrast that with a lot of the activities that my men, friends and peers were either playing or watching. You're allowed to show the work. You know, if you get sacked in football... You're allowed to grimace. In fact, in, in, in European football, you are encouraged to let people know how much it hurts. You actually get rewarded <laughs> for flopping on the ground and making a scene and showing the work. But in this hyper feminine activity, you have to conceal all the pain, you have to conceal all the work. And in fact, I think that the gap between what you see on stage as an audience member. And what you know the dancer is most likely experiencing, that duality and that contradiction is part of the appeal of ballet. It's part of the mystique of ballet, which is profoundly messed up.
3: Hmm. Yeah, that's such a good point, too. Like, people do know that point shoes are incredibly painful. And people would ask me that when they learned I was dancing on and and wanted to hear about my feet. And, <laughs> yeah, what do your feet look like? Are they all messed up? And something that I think people should really sit with
4: and think, should we really be applauding people for being able to conceal their pain as well as they do? Is that really a skill that we want young people, and particularly young women and girls, to be cultivating and perfecting? And the other place where it really felt like a metaphor for womanhood was that, you know, you think of a ballet dancer, you think of a woman, but... In most of the professional ballet world, at least, men are in charge. Meanwhile, girls outnumber boys in ballet classes 20 to 1. And, you know, the woman is the icon. And she's the person you, you look at on stage. But behind the scenes,
3: controlling the levers of power, it's all men. Now, boys in ballet do not have it easy. They might deal with stigma terrible bullying or homophobia, a pressure to be more quote-unquote masculine. But in the classroom, boys hold a special place. You know,
4: there are all these efforts to try and get more boys into ballet. There's a chronic shortage of boys in ballet. For most of them, they don't want to be there. They have to be cajoled into going and bribed into staying, either because they're given scholarships or they're held to a lower standard of behaviour and talent than girls are. Lots of men that I interviewed said that their teachers had put off the transition from shorts to tights for as long as they possibly can because they didn't want to scare the boys out of ballet. Meanwhile, the girls have been wearing heavily circumscribed attire to ballet since they were three, and there are no exceptions if you don't feel comfortable in the leotard and the tights, doesn't matter. If you don't want to do it there are 10 other girls who do and so ballet culture in general bends over backwards to get boys into ballet to keep boys into ballet one artistic director told me that boys in ballet are treated like golden princes or like little princes they're treated like they're special and better than girls and the girls see that and the boys internalize it and so I don't think we should be surprised that when those boys grow up and become professional dancers and enter a company that is run by a man with unquestioned power, that they start looking around and thinking my behaviour doesn't have any negative consequences. These women are disposable. I am special and irreplaceable. And a lot of girls and young women in ballet are trained to be quiet and obedient and compliant and to tolerate pain and discomfort and things that cross boundaries.
0: Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is it,
1: your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu.
0: From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip.
3: Chloe Angel says she realized while she worked on her book that sometimes she'd go back to this old way of thinking, of seeing herself and the world. I started calling
4: it ballet brain. Because it would happen a lot. And I really noticed when I started observing ballet classes for fieldwork and for reporting was that I could not take my eyes off the teacher. I was at a local dance studio in my town of Coralville, Iowa and instead of looking out at these young dancers in a pre-point class I just kept watching the teacher when I was supposed to be reporting on these girls and their transition from flat to point and I just remember noticing that about myself and thinking, oh boy, it's really in me. Because that's the other point of reference, is you're constantly checking the teacher, either because they are demonstrating an exercise or because you're checking, you know, are they watching me? Do they like what they see? Do they not like what they see? Am I worthless today? It's really in me in ways that I am aware of and also ways that I'm not aware of yet. And I was very fortunate to be living with someone and having my book edited by someone who didn't grow up in ballet and who didn't come to it with a lot of the assumptions and sort of taken-for-granted ideas that I did. And so having to explain some of these concepts, especially the more egregious ones, to non-ballet people was really easy to see, like, oh, I got a bad case of ballet brain
3: on that one. Do you remember some other instances, like that moment in the studio, when you were like, wait a minute, I'm I'm doing X or I'm assuming Y. An artistic
4: director of an American ballet company told me about the handful of times when he decided to not renew a contract of a dancer who he didn't think was in good enough shape, was too fat. And he explained it to me that you know, they do everything they can to make sure their dancers are healthy and they really try and support them in getting into shape, which again is a euphemism for skinny. But if they're not, in his words, if the dancer is not willing to put in the work, then he has to think about, you know, the long-term spinal health of the men who are lifting them. And he said something to me like, my back remembers every dancer I ever lifted. And I finished the interview and I was like, yeah, I mean, look, that's not ideal, but I get it. It makes sense to me. And I walked out into my kitchen and I recounted a lot of the interaction to my then fiance who did not grow up in ballet and knew basically nothing about ballet until he started dating me. And he was like, yeah, that sounds pretty messed up. My instinct was to defend it and to say, no, no, this is, this is why it has to
3: be this way. That was my reaction too. Of course you need to worry about men's backs. But then I started to realize the health of both the man and the woman is at stake in this scenario. The man's back and the woman's injuries and long-term health problems that come from eating disorders. Telling the woman to lose weight is prioritizing the man's health. Then you realize, what if we did value the health of the women as much as we value the health of the men?
4: the short-term mental health, the long-term employment prospects, the long-term physical health. Shit, what if we said, okay, so don't lift her. We'll choreograph something different and you won't lift her and she'll get to be the size and weight that she is and still have a job. I mean, when you actually think about it, guys, it's not rocket science. It's just a question of deciding, like, what do we value and what are we willing to change in order to actually act on those values.
3: I was surprised reading your book about some of the physical effects of dancing on young bodies. I mean, I really it was like, oh, what?
4: What I learned researching the book that I never learned is that once you stretch a ligament, it never contracts back. It's not like a muscle. A muscle you can stretch and it you know, can return to its, its old shape. Ligaments can't do that. And, you know, so many of the, the places that we stretch as dancers, we're stretching ligaments. And, you know, you stretch that out at seven, eight, it's never going back. And why does that matter? It matters because you won't be a dancer forever. And unless you maintain the strength to match that flexibility, you're
3: going to have real instability and real problems. Starting so young is part of the problem. The physical therapists Chloe interviewed said young kids should be stretching less. Young dancers working on their turnout can change the way their bones grow because of twisting in their growth plates. There should be much less of an an emphasis on developing an extreme
4: flexibility. There's no reason for an eight-year-old to be doing oversplits.
3: Beyond injury, young dancers can have malnutrition because of their eating habits, even if they don't have a diagnosable eating disorder. Malnutrition might affect their brain development. It can lead to hormonal changes and lower bone density in kids who are still developing. That can make them more vulnerable to broken bones and osteoporosis later in life. I also think that kids have to be both
4: told and shown that their pain and their discomfort will be taken seriously. What they've learned is that they will be rewarded for ignoring their own instincts and their own experience of their own body. Like, I'm not disregarding the traditions. I'm not saying we should junk them. I'm saying that we can do some things differently. All we have to do is be a little bit irreverent and being like, okay, so we change it. So what? One of the physical therapists I talked to said, we should not be putting girls on point until they're 15. To which a lot of people in the ballet world were like, that would fundamentally change ballet training and when people could start their careers. And Okay, and? (laughs) So? (laughs) Like, change it. See what happens. I mean, I don't think it can be worse than what we have now, which is like permanent
3: skeletal and ligament damage in 12 and 13 and 14-year-olds. Chloe says maybe dancers could have longer careers if they had fewer injuries as kids. And I would say it requires a certain level of irreverence.
4: And ballet breeds reverence. Reverence for tradition, reverence
3: for authority. It just breeds reverence.
4: Let's be a little irreverent and see what happens.
3: Literally at the end of every class, you have reverence. You know, It's like literally reverence is built into the class structure.
4: That's such a good point. I'm annoyed that I didn't notice that.
3: <laughs> it's like right there.
4: bowing and the curtsying. It's right there.
3: At the end of every class, it's tradition for students to do a final slow dance. I always loved this part of class, how it ends beautiful and slow, just simple expression. The center of the dance is a bow to the mirror, where the audience would be. Then everyone curtsies to the teacher. It's called reverence.
4: And it's also a reinforcement of authority and of the hierarchy. you bowing and curtsying to the teacher. And it's just, a to me, it feels like a reminder that like,
3: this art form has some very strange rules. Ballet has some strange rules, but it seems hard for teachers to break free from them. Maybe it's because we look to our predecessors, to the figures we admire. We mimic what they did. And in the case of Americans in ballet, we often look to Balanchine. What are some of the main effects of Balanchine that you see in the world of ballet? What comes to mind? The first thing I'll say is that he left us some truly fantastic
4: choreography really and truly against my like best strongest desires some of my favorite ballets still Balanchine ballets (laughs) Jules is spectacular Serenade is beautiful which is why when people asked me after the book came out are you trying to cancel Balanchine and I was like even if I wanted to how would I do that how does one even how do you you can't He's, you know, in the air, in the water, in the soil. He's, like, he's... The ecosystem of ballet is sort of suffused with this and shaped by this. And even if I wanted to, I wouldn't know where to begin. No God but Balanchine.
3: A lot of people call Balanchine a genius, To me, that word is charged. It's hard for me to hear it without bristling. Teresa Ruth Howard says
2: we need to think about who we give that label to. It's always been interesting to me how we assign the moniker of genius to Balanchine, which I think he is. But I find it interesting that the same title is not applied to Arthur Mitchell.
3: Arthur Mitchell, the founder of Dance Theatre of Harlem. After Mitchell danced in Balanchine's company, he went back to his community in Harlem to teach ballet. Then he started a ballet company.
2: Arthur Mitchell may not be a choreographic genius, but I think that where his genius lay is in the idea that he created an organization that really challenged the field of ballet itself. Who it belonged to. He created a new idea of what American ballet was and what it looked like.
3: Teresa has noticed that Arthur Mitchell often gets criticized for a leadership style she thinks
2: he learned from Balanchine. He was cut from the fabric of Balanchine. That was his model. He was very demanding. He demanded respect, but he's a Black man. He oftentimes gets, dare I say, vilified for those same characteristics. So... Arthur Mitchell is creating the same culture as a Balanchine in his own context, but it's perceived much differently than Balanchine. We don't call him a genius. There are so many people who do great things
3: who aren't called geniuses, and people who never get to develop their genius because of norms, expectations, barriers, who's given opportunities and resources. I also hardly ever hear the term applied to women. I'd be happy to throw out the label genius altogether, precisely because of who it leaves out. People use the word genius like it's a fact, when really, when you're talking about art, it's an opinion. In a way, it's so weird. Genius is discussed as this inherent trait. You are a genius or you're not. We like to bestow it upon people. Maybe it's a comfort. It feels good to think somebody knows better. Someone can lead me. Once you've been dubbed a genius, I think there are fewer checks on the choices you make. Even your art is viewed with less scrutiny. You can damage others in the name of your art without as much critique. It's seen as worth it. Those sacrifices are worth it for the output. When you hear someone is a genius, you feel this magic. You fall in line.
5: I think if you think about, you know... What kind of role model do you want Balanchine to be for people who are going to be the future of ballet? Do you want him to be this godlike figure who had everything figured out and had all the answers, and you had to obey and believe him and do what he said, and if you did that, everything would be all right?
3: Jim Steikens, the author who studied Balanchine's early years in the U.S., and like Chloe, He sees how Balanchine is viewed in an almost religious way.
5: I don't think we want those kind of leaders anymore. (laughs) You know, I think those kind of leaders are what we are discovering create these toxic environments in ballet. And so if we can think of Balanchine in a more down-to-earth, humane way and not have this myth of the lone male white genius, right? If we can think about art as this collaborative enterprise that takes all these people, I think that's where it really makes a difference.
3: This reminded me of something I noticed among dancers trained in Balanchine's lineage. Even the dancers who never worked directly with Balanchine know all these beautiful little stories about him, anecdotes that once helped them learn the choreography or that emphasize his genius. But other than that, they felt like they knew hardly anything about him. When you're in the Balanchine system, he's like the unspoken, for lack of a far better term, God. It was ingrained in our brains to respect and idolize him. Catherine Morgan says that, unlike with a lot of choreographers, Balanchine is never called George. Everyone calls him by his last name, Balanchine, or Mr. Balanchine, or Mr. B., He was amazing. He's a genius, blah, blah, blah. And you don't think about it because it's not talked about. It being? Like the extreme body expectations or the darker sides of him. Any of that. It's just, it's not talked about. So I don't actually know. So a lot never gets excavated. Dancers don't get to see the source of their own culture. The culture they swim in every day. In conversations with dancers, I've also sometimes noticed this pressure never to speak ill of Balanchine. Some of that pressure comes from love, gratitude. One former dancer said, He gave me my life. It feels like airing dirty laundry when you're talking about someone you see as your father, your mother, your everything. But I think some pressure also stems from fear. There's a strong perception that if you speak ill of Balanchine, Even now, it will harm your career. And then there's this fear that admitting to flaws in the past will tarnish an art form that already feels fragile. They want the art form to survive. And I do too. But in my mind, not confronting the darker sides is what could make ballet cave in on itself. We're
2: mythologizing trauma for the
3: art. Teresa Ruth Howard sometimes gets frustrated by how dancers remember Balanchine. It's like his memory gets mingled with these romanticized clouds of
2: perfume. They're not really digging underneath what that did to them, what that culture did to them. When you hear the dancers speak, what they sacrifice, the human sacrifice, that they actually like French press down to not feel or think about what we make okay in our minds so that we can dance, so we can just dance, so we can be seen as a dancer. That is generational trauma, and it is something that is folded into the legacy and lifted up in a way. When you say generational trauma, do you feel like that's affecting ballet students today, like children today? Absolutely. I think that the way that it shows up, the way that it presents, is in the way that we talk about and lionize Balanchine, because he held women in a very particular space. They are the flowers, and the men are the gardeners that pick the flowers. This is problematic. And so I'm not saying that they're using that language, but it is a behaved sort of way of being. There can be values around the body. There can be values around behavior. What is the appropriate way to behave as a dancer? And so you don't have to speak it. We behave these things. We behave our values.
3: Imagine that ballet is an old English manor house. It's full of rooms, and in every room, people are dancing. That's how choreographer and scholar Adishola Akinle talks about ballet, and I can't stop thinking about it. They say one room in the manor house is the grand hall. Everyone looks at the grand hall. It's full of an audience, it's where the attention is, the buzz and the lights. The Grand Hall is where people like Balanchine live, or people who've been permitted to enter Balanchine's world. But ballet is vast. There are many rooms in the manor house. There are many rooms of ballet. So many people are dancing it in their own companies, their own choreography, their own way. We've been looking at just this one room, its privilege and its restrictions because this room is still allowed to dictate how dancers should be. If you're in that grand hall, that one room can feel like your whole world. The thing is that someday, you're going to have to leave it. There's this saying that a dancer dies twice. As a ballerina from day one, you're always counting down to your first death the day you have to retire from the stage, leave the Grand Hall behind.
6: Oh my, I I can't even begin to touch how rich that culture is and was. Stephanie Saland says her ballet self was hard to shed. And there is an addiction to being on stage to having certain rhythms of what it takes to be on stage and to be an elite athlete. There was a ritual from 6 o'clock to 8 o'clock of getting ready, of getting primed, of self-talk and self-preparation to be a performer. I remember when I stopped, it did take me about two years to come down from that pitch, that energetic pitch of preparation— Physiologically, literally physiological, chemical. When you finally do move on, there's a recovery period. And I think the recovery period into the quote-unquote real world takes about 10 years on average to function in the
2: normal world.
3: Wilhelmina Frankfurt says part of the adjustment is realizing how abnormal your life has been for decades.
6: People have been making decisions for you, about you, and your life has been determined by a daily schedule. It's almost military in a way. You know, the bugle blows, that's class. There's
3: this weird thing about the elite professional ballet world. It's like time and age move differently than they do for other people. On one hand, you have to grow up fast. You're treated like an adult when you're just a kid. And then you might become a professional dancer at 16 or 17. On the other hand, even years after you enter the company, you aren't treated like an adult. So many of your life decisions are in the hands of the company. Members of the corps de ballet are often called kids. Coaches yell out to dancers in rehearsal, good girl, good girl.
6: Your responses are somewhat thwarted and childlike, and you got to catch up. How do you get a job? And who are you?
2: Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare.
7: I like catch myself doing a thing that I used to do in the ballet that I have to like check and recalibrate that I'm not actually in the theatre and that's not how people do things here on the outside.
3: You may remember Sophie Flack danced with New York City Ballet. And then, in the economic downturn of 2009, she was let go. To Sophie, it felt like being discarded. Like her body just filled a hole that could be filled by someone else. She didn't want to keep dancing after that. But the loss overwhelmed her. Without ballet to determine her every step in the world, she hardly knew where to begin. Eventually, she decided the first step would be education. She'd go to college. She picked Columbia.
7: When I went to Columbia, it felt like I'd just exited a bunker.
3: At first, she felt superior. After all, most people in her classes were teenagers. She was in her mid-twenties, and she'd been working this intense job at one of the most elite art institutions in the world. I
7: kind of walked onto campus feeling like hot shit. I came from City Ballet. Like, you just moved out of your parents' house. You know, like, i had a life. Like, I'd had certain experiences. I felt worldly. I'd traveled. So I went in being kind of snooty. And, like, day one, I was very humbled. (laughs) I... I was like, oh, you're actually like crazy smart (laughs) and I know nothing. (laughs) I was (laughs) like, oh, okay. There is a whole world outside of the theater I didn't know. My mind was freaking blown how little I knew, how much there was to learn. And I was an expert at everything that happened in the theater and I knew it really well. And I understood the ballet world, but I didn't understand what happened outside of the ballet world. I didn't know how to talk to people really or people of authority even had to talk to them because we didn't talk to our superiors at all i mean it's literally like growing up in a terrarium like a glass enclosing that is self-sustaining and you don't need anything else but like the stuff within the terrarium Sophie started to
3: realize this terrarium had grown around her for years, starting way back when she was 10, 11, 12, when she felt herself pulling away from the outside world to focus on
7: ballet. I couldn't participate in a lot of social things, after-school things, normal childhood things. And I would sort of reframe them in my head, like, oh, that's stupid. Like, I would put them down because I couldn't partake. I'd tell myself... What I'm going to do is more important. And that was like a coping technique that I developed in my own head. Like even these friendships, these bonds don't matter because who cares about children? No one's even going to remember this. And I would just like really sort of tear down all the things that I was missing out on. But looking back and now that I have my own children, the things that I missed out on were extremely formative. And... I'm kind of weird and screwed up because I miss them. What makes you say that? I mean, imagine a child separated from her peer group to join a cult and is taught a different culture, a different way of looking at things. Things like, if it's not uncomfortable, you're not doing it right being uncomfortable is normal, you bury your feelings and you're never good enough. I mean, these things are different than the things that you're normally taught, I hope. Um, I have two kids and a person's childhood is extremely important <laughs> Importantly, the whole rest of your life, your personality, how you see the world. I spent so much time trying to unlearn everything. I was wrong. Those dumb things really matter. They, they're really important. Even if the activity seems dumb, you're missing out on experiences and memories that shape who people are and I feel like I'm doing a lot of catch-up now and after I left the ballet world at 25 which for me felt very young at the time but now that I'm on the outside that was a long time that was 20 years in the ballet world that shaped me a lot Sophie
3: Flack says she had to unlearn ballet She'd been told that the skills she gained in the ballet classroom would serve her for the rest of her life. But she found they did the opposite. Sophie says she had to learn that her well-being mattered.
7: The biggest lesson post-ballet was actually recovering from postpartum depression. Because I approached motherhood like I approached ballet, with a lot of self-sacrifice, And for the betterment of the cause of the the art form, um, you know, abandoning the self. And it completely, as a new mom, um, I mean, I might have had horrible postpartum anyway. But with that approach and my hyper-perfectionism, I really lost my mind. I started to become psychotic. This was like real next level. um, And I was having whatever suicidal ideation and um there's more that I don't really want to share right now but it was very scary and after I had a breakdown I started taking my mental health more seriously I was like okay I need to uh relearn how to think <laughs> if I'm hungry I eat if I'm tired, I rest. I mean, like literally listening to my body and articulating my needs. I'm still learning how to do that better because there is life after dance. <laughs> Ooh. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> okay. Stoopy floopy. Is that hurt? Oh, funny. Oh, ouch. It like it hurt. It sounded like it
3: hurt. While Sophie sits on the floor of her living room, her daughter Eleanor climbs onto her back. Eleanor nestles her head into her mother's neck with a mischievous smile.
6: Mom? Yes? Can we dance together? Well, well, what? Well. We dance together. I think
7: mostly I'm just going to talk and not dance, but if you wanted to dance, we
6: could, could do that. Wow. Well.
7: So I'm not really in a dancing mood right now. I'm more in a talking mood. But, Mom, I want you to dance. I know. With me.
3: Eleanor started a creative ballet class this year, a room of three- and four-year-olds. When you're thinking back to your childhood being in something that you now sometimes compare to entering a cult at a young age, how do you feel about your daughter potentially starting to dance herself?
7: I am very conflicted. I mean, I'm conflicted about all of the things. Like, you know, I, I'm trying to recount as truthfully as I can about all these things, but pretty much everything I say has like another side to it, really. It's really hard to record a podcast about it because I don't have enough time to like really say it fully, actually. Yeah. I always have this like flip side of like love for this art form. And it was a, really great way for me to live um,
6: it gave me something to live for I don't really talk very much about ballet I don't have photos around me it's it's the past life it's a past life and it's woven into the cells but I don't wear it it's not a badge
3: but Stephanie Soland still feels ballet in her there are times it comes out in full force, like just a couple of years after she'd retired from the stage. She was guest teaching at a local school of the arts.
6: And I passed a room where somebody was rehearsing some Chopin. And a lot of the Robbins Bellies had Chopin on stage.
3: And something happened to Stephanie, something that would happen many times over the coming decades. The music took her back, like a flashback, a sudden whiff of her past life that reminded her how real it had been.
6: It's so visceral, and I was so jarred because I didn't know about this, but it was literally like being flooded and shifted back in time. It was quite jarring, actually. Then it was for me sad because I was still very close to having finished. And there were still the parts of me that were like, kind of like the loose tooth before it falls out. (laughs) I hear music and it's instantly a ballet. I see the steps, I see people doing it. I can actually feel the heat of the stage lights and the warmth of the wings. This morning I was driving and the music for Diamonds from Jewels came on. And I started welling up, driving in the car, (laughs) listening to that, seeing Suzanne Farrell and Peter Martins in front of my, the the screen of my mind, and thanking them, be so grateful for having witnessed that. And, And having that be part of a life. Every time I hear a piece of music, something is evoked and provoked. And the relationship to it is so deep. And what, uh, what gratitude for that.
3: We've been talking a lot about these dark sides of ballet. (laughs) is it worth it why ballet
4: the feeling that you get as an audience member which is like complete awe at what humans can do when they work together in its best form in its purest form you feel at home in your body when you dance and it's it's transcendent like when everything goes right when everything lines up And you're like spinning perfectly in a pirouette and you know you're going to land it cleanly and then you do,
6: Mm.
4: there's nothing like it, right? Nothing like it. You feel so at home in your body and like, that's not nothing. It's really precious. It's really valuable.
3: My most recurring dream is a pirouette. (laughs) On point? On point. And I spin 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 and I spin. And I don't stop spinning for a long time. It's something I could never do in the real world or maybe anyone could do. But just rotating, rotating. And then at the end of the pirouette, I just stay balanced on point. I don't come down. I just hover. And it is that feeling in your body that you don't get anywhere else. I don't know how to describe it if it's like, Flying, but it's the most beautiful feeling. I still remember what that feels like. And so those dreams are so vivid. Those are the types of dreams that I 100% think they're real while I'm in the dream. I feel that dream in my body more than any other dream that I have. Yeah. And then I wake <sighs> up and I realize it's not It's not reality. But it's so glorious that it has stuck with me all these years. And it keeps coming back to me, even though I haven't done it in so long. And that is
4: why ballet matters. Because you haven't done it in over a decade, but it's still in you. And so it matters that we get this right. If it is going to stick with us
3: forever, it matters that we get it right. It matters that we get this right. This is something all ballet teachers know you need a strong foundation. You need good technique. It's another lesson the classroom teaches us, and it's one I think we shouldn't discard. When it comes to ballet, With bad technique, you can't keep up with complicated steps. You're in trouble. A couple of flaws are placement issues and your dancing isn't safe, even if it looks beautiful. Years later, it'll lead to injury. The thing is, it's really hard to retrain. It's hard to get rid of bad habits in dance. That's why when you learn ballet, you start with the basics and you repeat those basics every day for the rest of your dancing life. First, a plié, a knee bend. Then the porte de bras, move your arms. And then, tendu, you slide your leg out so it's stretched and pointed. Once you tendu, you realize it's the base of most steps. Almost all ballet steps are modified tendus, tendus in different forms. Balanchine understood this and he loved his tondus. He had his dancers drill them, not just 8 tondus, not 16, not 32, not 64. They did hundreds at all speeds, front, side, back. He'd prod them by saying, "What are you saving it for, dear?" Then he'd say, "Faster." You drill until it's automatic, until it's etched neurologically in your brain. When culture is drilled, culture becomes automatic too. We need to look at the tandu of valet culture, the foundation. If we don't address the problems there, we'll have injuries later on. And that's what's happened. There are people now being injured, being harmed, by dancing ballet. And that's why we have to confront the past. It all builds on itself. Balanchine is considered a genius because he changed ballet. He pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable on stage. To make ballet beautiful, we need change too. We need to take a risk. That's how we make it better. That's how we keep it alive. And we can't wait to make this change. What are you saving for, dear? The Turning is a production of Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcasts. It's written and produced by Aylan Lance Lesser and me. Our story editor is Emily Foreman. Mixing and sound design by James Trout. Jessica Carissa is our assistant producer. Andrea Asuaje is our digital producer. Fact-checking by Andrea lopez Cruzado. So many thanks to all of the people who helped and supported us with this project, including Gretchen Gavitt, Jacob Nicola and Theo Silber, Margaret Lambert, Kayla Reed, Stella Grisant, Lisa Zagarmi, John Frischkoff, Zach Smith, Jacob Smith, Courtney smith Wiesmore, Erica Berger, Paul English, Betsy McMillan, Holly Palandro, Matt Silverman, and Andrew Lesser. Special thanks to Ann Macaluso, Kate Osborne, Christine Ragasa, Travis Dunlap, Elizabeth Wachtel, Brianna Hill, Simon Pullman, Nancy Wolfe, Allison Cantor, and the wonderful teams at Rococo Punch and iHeart Podcasts for their support. Our executive producers are John Parati and Jessica Alpert at Rococo Punch, and Katrina Norvell and Nikki Etor at iHeart Podcasts. For photos and more details on this series, follow us on Instagram at Rococo Punch, and you can reach out via email. The turning at rococo I'm Erica Lance. Thanks for listening.
1: Play.